Hello, and welcome to Benyo Chats, my personal podcast where I speak to unique thinkers and doers. If you're curious about the world, this show is for you. Should we care about corporate purpose? On this episode, I speak to Tom Gosling. We discuss how Tom thinks incentives should be structured, what company boards can reasonably do, and why pay ratios are red herrings. If you like the show, please like and subscribe as it helps others find the podcast. Enjoy! Hello everyone, I am super excited to introduce uh, Tom Gosling. Tom was a partner at PwC and an advisor to boards around executive pay and incentives, governance and strategy. He's currently an executive fellow at London Business School and helps steer the work of the Purposeful Company Collaboration. He has recently hosted his own podcast, the Grow the Pie podcast at London Business School, and is advising people as a financial and executive coach. I should say this is an informal educational podcast and we're not endorsed by or speaking for any of the organizations we are associated with. So welcome, Tom. Ben, it's a delight to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Great. We'll just get straight into it. So purpose. Mm. Critics argue that corporate purpose is mostly PR and path and good messaging and doesn't really mean anything. Whereas proponents might claim that this is the sustainable way to long-term wealth and welfare and value creation. What's your current thinking around this, given all of the work you've done with the Purposeful Company and uh, the Purpose Tapes that you guys have just recently put out? Well, I mean, I think sadly, it's probably true that on the whole, currently, purpose does a little bit fall into your sort of PR marketing um, bucket. But that's not sort of the best vision for, for, for what it can be. And I think that on the one hand, I think purpose is pretty simple, actually. I mean, I think if organisations lose touch with what they're here to do and the benefit that they provide to society, then, you know, they're unlikely to be successful. So at a very, you know, at a very simple level, purpose provides a sort of a guide to organisations creating long-term value. So I, I don't, I don't think that purpose is just guff, but at the same time, I don't think purpose is the answer to all the world's problems. And I think sometimes purpose advocates can sort of a little bit overclaim for what purpose can do. But I just think clarity about what you're doing for your customers, the impacts that you have on your stakeholders, why you exist in the world, has just got to be a good thing for running a great business. And, and, and I think if you look at a lot of great businesses, actually, they've got that really strong sense of, of what they're here to do at, at the core of everything that they do. And did you have any particular learnings from these purpose tapes which have just gone out any sort of reflections you got oh that was a new thing or I didn't really get that yeah so there's one really interesting thing I think which is not quite all but the vast majority of the CEOs interviewed um, say that they don't see any conflict at all between being purposeful and value creation and, and I find this kind of quite fascinating I'm actually sort of slightly skeptical about it because I think that there are that there are trade-offs but there's sort of, but there is this really strong conviction that they all have that actually this is not an either-or discussion. This is about the route to how we create long-term value, and I think there's quite a lot in that. Although you know we can get carried away by it because at the end of the day there are there are trade-offs. I mean, I can I can choose to pay my employees more or or retain more in profits in the business. I mean, I sort of have that sort of decision every day, um, particularly when you come to issues like the environment. There are still you know, externalities that companies can can take advantage of if they want to, you know, to, to, to create money, at least over the short term. 
But I think it was very interesting the extent to which all of the almost all of these leaders were really kind of committed to this idea that that, that there wasn't a trade-off. Uh, I think the second thing that was interesting is that quite a common theme that came out from both investors and companies that that we spoke to was that there's there's something not quite working in the dialogue between the two around purpose. And, you know, companies are sort of saying that, oh, you know, investors don't get it. They just ask about the short term numbers the whole time. But then the investors say, well, actually, the companies are just serving up all this PR guff that doesn't really have anything to do with the business or long term value. So there's a little bit of um, investors and companies talking across each other at the moment. And certainly one of the things that in the purposeful company we're interested in looking at a little bit more this year is how can we improve that sense of shared understanding about about corporate purpose and i'm sure you'll have a perspective on that that challenge from you know your day job hat yeah you can you actually see that a little bit within reporting which i'm sure you'll touch upon where you end up with a lot of reporting which is on the one hand kind of material so for instance you could talk about uh, currency risk right that's obviously a kind of material risk to a to a business or commodity prices but actually typically it's not a, that interesting a risk for investors it's almost like a boilerplate risk mm. and so you've got this cross-purpose where you're kind of going yeah under any sort of framework it's kind of material but it's not of material interest to yeah. investors over the long term and essentially that's just one example of where you of where you get this like well it's useful to know where your purpose statement is say healthcare companies typically have one about saving or improving human lives but it's not kind of materially interesting unless we know how exactly are you uh, are you are you achieving that through whatever mechanisms you go and so i think that's where a part of the confusion is as well as the fact that um investors which we make a market are um we're a very um mixed group you know heterozygous as we would think and it's much more mixed than uh potentially companies or uh, or other people realize which kind of it kind of brings me on actually to uh, another question which is an offshoot of this which is that uh i guess one framework is you have companies uh you have people stakeholders you have uh, NGOs and other organizations, and you have government. Mm. And, and I guess the lines that seem to be blurred between what are government responsibilities, what are mm. corporate responsibilities, yeah. what are investor and people and in, in, in other stakeholders. But the, you can really see this between the company piece, the government piece, and the investor piece. Mm. And one theory I, I hear, which I think there's some credence towards, is that increasingly policy or, say, governments has pushed some aspects of what maybe previously we would thought would be in government or policy remit mm. onto companies and in, in investors. So it's like, well, government's not going to have a, a real policy around carbon or net zero, but we're going to expect uh, individuals and companies to all do it, and 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 that would be and that would be great. So I was kind of interesting in in maybe the cross section of purpose. Do you do you feel there's been this blurring between say government responsibilities and corporate or investor and other stakeholders uh, and should we be doing anything uh, uh, about that and therefore do we feel some sympathy actually for companies and investors who are being potentially asked to take on responsibilities which you could argue maybe they're not best well suited for or if they are suited for are then they don't have the say democratic mandate to do something which really should be through a government mechanism so I think we've got the next 20 minutes of our conversation <laughs> put it out here, Ben. Just on at that least, one piece. At least. 
because because I mean this is th you've you've raised so many fascinating issues in 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 that question. Um, I'm just going to start by connecting back a little bit to the to you know to the previous comment around this sort of lack of this sort of lack of meeting of minds within with investors and companies around purpose and your comment on materiality because I think that there is this sort of confusion or at least mixed views about what purpose is and is there to do right so some people think that purpose is about companies just being nice to everybody right and um therefore you know understanding all of their potential stakeholder impacts mitigating negative stakeholder impacts and so on and so forth and um that's where some of this kind of pressure around kind of social responsibilities coming onto companies comes in and I'll, I'll maybe come back to that because I think the thing that a lot of articulations of purpose really miss which is what caused investors problem with it is how does this purpose help and support the organization in creating value over the long term and, and I think that's where purpose really needs to start and quite often what you find is that purpose statements just try to pick out kind of the good bits that a company does and you know and it's almost it, it's almost like um I don't know, it's, it's almost like sort of buying indulgences from the church in the Middle Ages. You know, you do all of this sort of terrible stuff over here, but then you've got your purpose over here that kind of makes it all okay. Whereas actually, I think the few companies that do purpose really well have a very deep understanding of how it links into their value creation process. And um, I, I think, you know, um, Freddie Wolf at, at, at Jupiter, but for his, his, his master's thesis, he did, a, he did a review of all of the purpose statements of FTSE companies. And I can't remember the exact numbers, but about 10% of them, you know, you made any reference to strategy or value or, you know, so they sort of sit in, as this sort of abstract thing. And I think this is in part in response kind of coming on to the, the, the question you just asked, to this pressure that corporates feel under to be sort of fulfilling kind of societal goals. And I, I think we need to be quite careful about this. Um, of course, you know, we need corporates to be acting in a way that is consistent with sort of societal expectations of, of, of the time. But also we need corporations and investors um, to focus on what they're good at, and to your point, what they have a mandate to do. And I think the danger of pushing too much onto corporates is, is, is twofold. One is it distracts them from doing the stuff that they're really good at. But the second is it creates this idea that we're solving the problem when actually in some of these areas, what we need is really strong government action. And, um, you know, and I, I think there's there's a little bit of a danger that we all sort of pat ourselves on the back about this sort of wonderful responsible business movement, you know, when actually it's not making a sufficient difference. So, so if I take an issue like climate change, for example, which is, you know, I think quite a good case study of this. At the moment, there's all of this kind of push for investors and corporates to be taking the action on climate change. There are you know, a couple of real problems with that. I mean, one is it's just not going to have a big enough impact, right? We might sort of bend the curve by 10% or something through this sort of thing. But the only way we're going to absolutely reverse it is by getting proper regulation, you know, decisions like banning internal combustion engines, carbon pricing, all of these kind of things are what's going to create the environment where investors and companies can do what they're really good at, which is to, you know, optimize scarce resources. And I think the way that we're trying to do it Number one, this whole issue around climate change is fundamentally an optimization problem, and you can't do it at the company level. You have to do it at the system level. Um, but I think also this point about democratic accountability is, is really, really important because there are going to be winners and losers. 
you know, and it, if you're investors who are, or, or a board, you know, who's deciding, for example, you know, let, let's say you've got an asset, you, let's say you've got a coal mining, you know, uh, coal mine as an asset, right? Now, obviously every coal mine should be kind of shut as soon as possible, right? We should just not be pulling this stuff out of the ground anymore. But then you say, well, you put yourself in the position of the company or its investors. So, you know, if they shut the coal mine, that harms their beneficiaries. So, so that imposes the cost on them, but actually it also harms the community where the coal mine sits. And, and so what is their legitimacy for making that decision? Now you could say, well, if all of their investors gang up and tell them, well, we don't want to own coal mines anymore. We want you all to shut them and we're prepared to pay the cost. I suppose that at least solves that problem, but you then still got the problem of the community on the receiving end being told by all of these shareholders who are on a weighted basis, rather wealthy people, telling them that they can't have their, their, their livelihood anymore. So, so I, I think that we are starting to expect a little bit too much from responsible business. And if we think that really pushing this political decision-making into the realm of corporates is going to somehow appease people who are frustrated about capitalism, I'm really not sure. I'm really not sure that's, that's true. And, and I guess one final point on this as well. I mean, boards, when they're thinking about what it means to be quotes responsible, have in mind a particular target demographic, whether it's their customer base or their investor base. And that is not demographic, that is not democratically representative. So, uh, I mean, there's just loads of problems here. I, I think we need to sort of pull back a little bit from this notion that, that business solves all these problems. Yeah, and it, it can kind of give governments a sort of free pass, right? They've, they've, mm. managed, to, they've managed to push it on. And they managed to push it on. We've got oh, the pike, so I'm going to end a... for one second, and we will Are restart. <laughs> I love the way it just appeared out of the virtual background. That's <laughs> that's an amazing trick. Um, so you've been a trusted advisor within the boardroom of a vast number of some of the largest corporates in the world. And my impression is that most boards are well-meaning, but actually we can see they still make mistakes in their decision-making, mm. obviously need mm. advice. I'd be interested, can you give me your impressions of what it is like working with, uh, with non-execs? We don't really get a glimpse into what happens in, in the boardroom. And I think actually this is one of the problems on the democratic accountability part that we were talking about because boards don't have that same sort of political decision, but are making some of these. So um, as a trusted advisor, can you give a little insight as to what it is like uh, working with these non-execs? Are they as yeah. well-meaning as they seem? Is it, uh, you know? Tricky? Yeah, I, so I, I would say that definitely um, board members are well-meaning. Uh, I, I, I think that, that, you know, this idea of sort of, um, you know, greedy, avaricious, board members just trying to exploit stakeholders for for gain you know it just just hasn't been my my experience um but what is you know also interesting is that um you know ultimately they're just people sitting in a room right and um we sometimes sort of think of somehow these boards being omniscient and having all of these amazing sources of information and of course they do have incredible resources but ultimately they are making decisions you know, based on limited, limited information. And therefore, as you say, they can make mistakes. And as with everybody, you know, they are, um, you know, they are riven by, um, you know, all of the limitations that, you know, that we have as humans. And I think one of the other things that people maybe don't always acknowledge is, you know, boards 
boards are non-executive. So it's executive teams that really run companies. Boards don't run companies. And there's something, again, I think that's a little bit dangerous about assuming too much of boards and what boards are, are, are capable of, of, of doing. They really do play a, a role of sort of challenging uh, the, the executive as opposed to really getting into the weeds of running the company. But I do think that on the whole, you've got, you've got high quality people doing these jobs. Um, I do, you know, I do think, however, that there's, there are sort of limitations in terms of the amount of time that they have available to spend. They're very dependent on what the executive presents to them. You know, I mean, executives can quite successfully, um, you know, keep control of boards, I think. Uh, and, um, you know, board members, you know, only spend whatever it is, 30, 30 days a year on, on, on the business of their company. So, yeah, again, I don't think we should be too ambitious for what we think they're going to do. I think the other issue as well is that on the whole, you know, boards don't terribly like being in a case of in a state of perpetual conflict um, either. And so, you know, the number of times in which a board is really prepared to go toe to toe with the executive is is kind of limited uh, as well. So they're a sort of, um, you know, inevitably flawed human institution, but um, you know, they are definitely have, you know, on the whole, good intent, e even if the execution isn't always perfect. Yes, and reflecting what you say, I, people I speak to who aren't involved in the investment world are surprised how little investors speak to boards. So that has mm. its pros and cons. But it relates to your first point that actually they speak to management a lot because yeah. management is, is running companies. Uh, but there is a kind of um, aphorism um, that we sometimes adhere to or, or think about is that uh, sometimes CEOs choose boards and sometimes boards choose CEOs. So we know there is kind of board yeah. capture by management yeah. teams, if you want to call it that, because they are meant to be supportive. But to what extent you've had uh, you've had constructive, uh, constructive challenge on that. I so do think also, on. Ben, that, 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 there's a, that there are also you know, certain CEOs who where the boards, you know, kind of in awe of them, you know, and, and I can think of cases where there've been CEOs of, of, of large companies who sort of looked around the board table and you can tell they're thinking, you've never had a job as big as my job. Right, <laughs> you know? yes. And, you know, so what do you think you're doing telling me what to do? And sometimes you can see that the non-execs are, are somewhat in awe um, of the CEO. Uh, and so that that whole question of board dynamics is, a, you know, is a really fascinating one. And, um, you know, and I guess it is sort of human nature in that boards, boards tend to be kind of in one of two states. They're either hugely supportive of the CEO or they're trying to get rid of them. Yeah. And, you know, the, the, there aren't that many boards who are able to maintain a sort of perpetual state of constructive tension. Um, because it's actually, I mean, it's quite difficult and tiring and wearing to do that. So you do seem to see this sort of, you know, flip-flopping that, that, that goes on a little bit. And then suddenly the CEO's fired and they move on to the next person that they think's a hero. Yeah. Actually, that's it's a similar observation on when you have a more activist investor or an activist who's gone on the board. It, it tends not to last forever and ever because it's very draining on both sides. And you kind of have to resolve one way or the other on, on seeming who's... Uh, who's right or not. Um, so maybe squaring back on that last uh, thing or point where we said about responsibility of, of boards mm -hmm. to close this off is, to what extent then do you think uh, companies 
uh, should be dipping into some of the arguments on inequality or not, because this kind of ticks into pay ratios and fairness mm. and all of these things, which is obviously of an underlying importance for stakeholders, whether that's employees or within that. But again, there's this seem to be uh, a lot of emphasis pushing on to companies uh, to deal with potential things of inequality. Whereas I know there's some proponents within sort of the economic sphere which say, well, mm. the, the best way to do that on a systematic point is to enable proper transfers within the system, either via uh, tax or benefits or however, however the system, the politics has decided mm. to do that mm. rather than to be able to do that uh, within a, a company structure or outside of companies, say sportsmen mm. or women, how mm. uh, how they should be paid. Mm. Um, and I know you've done some work on pay ratios, kind of mm. uh, suggesting that it's too much of a blunt tool. So I'd be interested on, on where you mm. think, again, on the lines of responsibility for boards on this and to what extent that that, that should flow into uh, pay ratio or, or fairness kind of thinking. Yeah, I mean, you know, this is this is really interesting, isn't it? I mean, I suppose I think, you know, if you look at kind of root causes of inequality, then, you know, you'd have to say that corporations are kind of coming at it a little bit late in the day in the sense that, you know, a lot of it is built around, you know, early life, education, upbringing, health, housing quality, diet. You know, apparently, I mean, so there's a whole there's a whole bunch of stuff where really corporations can't do a lot about it, frankly. And, you know, uh, and a lot of the issues that arise around inequality are really have to be the preserve of government action to, to, to kind of get anywhere with it. Uh, having said that, you know, I do think that, um, you know, corporations do need to, you know, can, can play their role in, in, in perhaps addressing or at least helping not to exacerbate some of the inequalities that society has thrown up. And, you know, I think that things like, you know, a focus on, for example, social mobility, racial equality, gender equality, you know, I think if, if corporations don't think about those issues at all, then all of the sort of embedded mechanisms of advantage that in society just get perpetuated through the way corporations work you know as well so i think you know work that we've seen for example on um you know trying to place less emphasis on prior grades in 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 recruitment processes and um you know all of these kind of things that are done i i think are useful ways in which corporations can um can help address these issues and, you know, to some degree, they have a self-interest in doing that to the extent that it enables access to wider talent pools and avoids talent being, being overlooked. I think where we need to be a little bit careful is, is in expecting organisations to stray into areas that go way beyond their own commercial self-interest, unless we're going to kind of have a democratic framework that pushes them to do that. So. Um, you know, let's say, for example, you know, I, so I'm all in favour of, you know, governments doing work around, you know, having um, good labour laws uh, and, um, you know, worker protections. And I, I mean, I think that's the sort of thing that's an essential role of government. Now let's move that into the corporate sphere. And we know that there's some evidence that companies that treat their workers well end up doing better financially. Uh, but there's going to be a limit to that. So then the question is, 
you know, should companies treat their workers better if there's no law that requires them to do it and there's no kind of governance code that requires them to do it and it's not going to make them any better off. And, you know, and again, I think we come back to this point about legitimacy because that, you know, if a company spends money doing that and it doesn't make them any better off, it's their shareholders that have that have, that have paid for it. And so what's what's the legitimacy behind that decision? And I don't think we can just sort of entirely brush that under the carpet. And that's where I think there needs to be some discipline around this decision making. And um, I actually quite like um you know, Alex Edmonds criteria on this around, you know, if you're going to get into that sort of stuff, you know, um, you know, is it aligned with your purpose? So is it is it part of the consistent story you're telling the outside world about why you exist? You know, do you have a unique capability to do that that another organization doesn't have? Um, are you actually going to make a massive impact to the, you know, to the people that you're you're doing it, doing it for? Um, and, um, you know, I think that but I think that just sort of willy-nilly, I don't think organisations are there to just willy-nilly be nice to people, I suppose. Yeah, and so you, you end up where the Coinbase CEO recently said, saying, we're going we're gonna to stay out of politics yes. uh, as a company. But although, very interestingly, actually has uh, a lot of relationships and work with regulators, which would suggest that it is not. But obviously, when you're mm. in a space, say, as a crypto exchange, you would ex you would expect that as a key stakeholder who is interested in that. So it's kind of interesting that that would dove with one's purpose if one, mm. if one wanted to do that. That actually kind of brings us on to, uh, you know, some of the government's things. Um, I'm thinking audit reform. I'm also thinking TCFDs to some extent. So yeah. on audit reform, I mm. guess... Uh, Proponents are suggesting we need separation of audit from large firms because there's been conflicts of interest and quality of audit has not been uh, uh, that high in certain areas. We've had fraud. Um, we've had issues of uh, companies going uh, bankrupt. On the other hand, you have people suggesting that separation is not going to necessarily improve audit quality when certain companies fail. It's actually healthy for them to fail because it's perhaps a failure of the business model and corporate culture. You might have problems with audit quality if they're not supported uh, by enough uh, by enough pay. Obviously, Bayes and FRC are currently uh, consulting on this. Do you mm. have any thoughts on any aspects of audit reform that you think are are perhaps not as well understood as we should think about. Yeah, so I mean, I've got a couple of observations on the base proposal. So, so one of the things that that I think is interesting is this whole area of um, of audit policy and giving investors a vote on 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 audit policy. And again, I, I think that could be useful. I mean, I think I think if there's an area where there's a really problematic company and, and investors want to come together to try to bring about change, that could provide a useful focus on that. But again, I worry a little bit about kind of pushing too much of this responsibility on, onto investors as opposed to really reminding everybody that it's the audit committee's responsibility to, you know, to, to kind of really oversee this stuff. So again, we could get law of unintended consequences there and, and, and efforts to sort of drag investors into areas where maybe they're not the best equipped to do it. When it comes to the audit reforms itself, it's very difficult to know what to do about this because I think that I, I'm not convinced that their proposals on audit separation are really going to make a lot of difference because my experience working in a, in a big four firm was that, um, 
you know, this, this pressure to compromise the audit in order to win fees elsewhere. I mean, I just never saw any evidence of, of, of that at all. And um, because generally people are well-meaning. Yeah, general, but also, yeah, but also very concerned about reputation, you know, and um, I mean, I had situations where, you know, before it became prohibited under the rules, I did special projects on remuneration for, for, for audit clients. And I had CEOs complaining about my work to the chair of the of, of the firm. And, and I was always backed up, you know, and there was there was always this idea that actually you have to be even more independent in your advice to, <laughs> to an auditor because our <laughs> reputation's on the line here, you know. So I, I don't really buy that premise that that is what's at the root of the audit quality issue. I, I do think, you know, having said that, you know, I think it's it's undeniable that there's more needs to be done to to you know that th th there have been too many cases i think where where audits haven't quite worked out and and i think that th there's something here where we've gradually just sort of chipped away at the status of the audit the purpose of the audit has become more technical um you know i sort of feel that the stature of the audit partners isn't isn't quite what it was um, you know, in terms of the extent to which they really had a seat at the boardroom table rather than just sort of pitching up every once in a while to an audit committee. Um, maybe we're not paying enough for audits. I, I don't know. But, but, but there is a sort of a cost benefit trade off, because if we want every audit to be a real time forensic audit, right all of the forensic investigation of every company in the FTSE, right? <laughs> anyway, that's going to cost us a lot of a, 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 a lot of money. So I, I suppose what I come back to on, on, on this is, you know, you look back on time in time and you say with the benefit of hindsight, you know, should, should regulators have let PW and Coopers merge? I mean, that was probably the one that in an ideal world, you wouldn't have done that so that when Anderson failed, you'd still have five, not four. Um, but I think also th there is something about the, the aggressiveness of the regulation of, of the regulation. So, I, you don't want to create a fear culture, but I think when there are really bad audit failures, you know, fines and sanctions have to be enough to, to really has make to have some teeth. up and notice, you know, and you definitely don't want to be going after small infringements, but, you know, when you've just had grotesque failures of, um, you know, of oversight, you just think, actually, you've got to, you've got to send a message that, that, that that's, not a, that that's not acceptable. So uh, probably if I was going to make any change, it wouldn't be a structural one to the market. It would just be to, you know, give the give the regulator a bigger stick in the first instance. Yeah, which I think actually the part of the reforms will uh, will do that. Yeah. So thinking then about reporting burdens uh, in generally, uh, everyone is seemingly going around the route of TCFDs. This is mm. uh, the task force on climate uh, related disclosures. Uh, critics would say this is an added uh, cost and that mm. critics would also argue that perhaps for a whole bunch of companies and even for the financial system itself in the in the short term, there is no acute risk from climate. Yes, mm. there's transition risk. Yes, there's a long term. Mm. Yes, there's a systemic problem. Uh, but this this really require the burden of these scenario analysis, which you can which you can poke holes from. So an economist like uh, John Cochrane would would be arguing on that. Yeah. On the flip side, actually, you've got another body of work which suggests that uh, transparency, particularly on material areas, are very yeah. useful for investors, actually very useful for organizing operationally in terms of where cash flows are going and may even impact uh, cost of capital, cost of debt or cost of equity. And to the extent that you have uh, systemic issues or in fact 
may be now central banking mandates have some climate within them, at least within the mm. UK, then that would be a useful, uh, a useful area. So I'd be interested, do you have any views on, I mm. guess, overall reporting, but we can see this through the lens of uh, the climate uh, related mm. reporting mm. that everyone is being asked to think mm. about now? Yes, yeah, so I, I, it's interesting. I, I think that on the whole, the climate related reporting is a, is a good thing. Um, and I suspect that we'll we'll see it develop quite a lot further from from TCFD as well. And the reason I think it's a good thing is that, um, well, number one, climate change is a really important issue. But also, I think it's really difficult for investors to do some of the analysis that's required to really understand all of the impacts that, are, that, are, that climate change has on a company. And I think you, you were making this point in the seminar you, you gave just the other day. And so I think requiring companies to make some of that analysis available to investors in a structured way, uh, I think makes, makes a lot of sense for an issue that is clearly gonna be so important, not just for society, but for so many companies. Now you could argue that you know, where we're spreading the net a little bit wide because there are some companies for whom this is you know, neither a material issue nor do they have a material impact on the issue for society. So, you know, you could argue that maybe we could have picked sort of 400 companies or something that are the ones that we really want to do this. I guess you then get into the problem of what exactly how do you do that and, you know, select those companies. Um, you know, but, but, but it might be interesting, I suppose, if if there were any sort of sense of global regulation around this issue as you have for financial firms, you know, why shouldn't you have globally systemic climate firms in the way that you have globally systemic financial firms? And yeah, I mean, you know, we know that, I mean, so for example, you know, Climate Action 100 plus has sort of come up with that, that list. And actually then you might impose a higher reporting standard around climate on those firms. And, and actually that seems broadly a sensible thing to do. I'm just not quite sure in practice how you'd align that with the current way that regulations are organized yeah kind of globally you know quite quite hard to do but although it's an interesting idea but i do where, where i have um you know some some sympathy around with john cochrane's position is that you know, yeah climate is, is is a really really important issue and therefore there's this temptation that we want everybody to do everything they can to address this issue of, of, of climate change. Um, but then you need to look at, well, who are, the, who are the people best equipped to do it? And do they have a democratic mandate to do it? And, and I think the big issue and difference really between what's happening in the US and the UK is that in the UK, the inclusion of climate change within the mandate for the financial regulators did follow due democratic process because you know, the chancellor has the ability under our laws to just say whatever he wants them to have as their kind of key areas. But I mean, that at least is our democratic process. I think the suspicion in the US is that there's this sort of move to paint climate as being this sort of immediate kind of financial stability issue, which it kind of probably isn't actually, but it's being portrayed as that in order to kind of shoehorn it in under the SEC's, under the Fed's mandate, because there's no chance in hell of them formally changing the Fed's mandate through Congress. So that then brings us back to this political kind of legitimacy point. And, um, and it's kind of a tough one, but I do think that, you know, on the one hand, 
it's good for you know kind of corporates and regulators to sort of lead the witness a little bit on climate change but if you become too far detached from something that you think you could get support for politically you potentially create a bigger problem down the line and you know and ultimately our goal um you know particularly given that all of these sort of tinkering changes around governance responsible business the role of the fed aren't really going to do any more than just sort of slightly shift the trajectory of the curve at some point we've got to face up to the fact that if we're going to address climate change we need political support for some pretty drastic action um and we can't keep kicking that can down the road yes uh, and i i think that's true this is the whole it's a theme actually on this chat which has been very interesting about this democratic process particularly uh, particularly in the us particularly where you have got suspicions over whether certain things are being shoehorned mm. or not and, and i do think it's interesting how when you think on the regulator slide it's been relatively slow to understand for instance global financial services and their lending book and how that might play into yeah into climate uh, something which actually TCFDs maybe slightly sparked as a sort of realization, mm. but actually mm. uh, practitioners sort of knew always, but then also the balancing of the stakeholders being, you know, too far away. Like you say, if you're going to finance a new coal mine in, in Wales and you've been asked to do that, you, you, you're you not going to necessarily have to take into account, well, you know, what, what's the Welsh community do or do, do not within that financing, that financing yeah. decision. I think that's a really interesting one, though, Ben, I think, because the, 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 this role of banks and financing, I mean, if, if you look at the, you know, so there are various sort of pressure points around, you know, responsible investing, that, which is obviously a very sort of trendy area at the moment. But the whole, you know, on the whole, I think sustainable equity investing, you know, the evidence suggests that they're sort of slightly second order impacts on some of this stuff but debt financing can be really first order and when you have a relatively small number of institutions at the heart of a vast proportion of global debt financing on pretty much anything of scale that is a channel where you know you could make life really difficult for dirty activities as, as you know i mean people wanting to finance new coal projects are now significantly constrained in where they can go if they don't have direct government backing to do that yes uh, and for listeners, for instance, you could you could look at what's happened with HSBC and a shareholder engagement there in terms of their lending book financing mm. for some mm. of the mm. uh, debates around about that. Um, so a slight pivot to the personal, but keeping with mm. the climate theme is yeah. you've gone. Actually, we've both gone on a kind of um, climate net zero uh, journey yeah. ourselves. Um, partly, mm. I think, for, for my own personal insights, it gives me has given me a real insight into how difficult it will be or is for companies without this government, uh, with this government piece. And I didn't fly at all last uh, last year. Actually, no, I, I did in the early part, but if I take the March to March, and I think I've got my carbon footprint down to only around about eight. Now the average in the UK is about yep. 12. A global yeah. I think is four or five, but I actually mm. was kind of hoping that I could get it lower than eight, but actually um, I'm probably not. I can, I can maybe do one or two extra things on a delaying, um, consumption basis still, yeah. like I, I don't yeah, need yeah. to buy new clothes or new computers. But the the embodied things about living in the UK and just using UK goods and services, just existing, actually, here. Just existing yeah. here, means yeah. kind of unless you're unless you're really really living very frugally, you, you're pretty much at five or six 
just yeah. living a, an ordinary life. So that I thought that was quite interesting, but maybe do you want to tell us a little bit about your mm. learnings from a net zero journey personally yeah. and how you found that and, and, mm. and where you are, maybe a couple of tips or whatever you'd like to observe on it. Yeah, I mean, it's been a lot of fun and, um, you know, I, I, I've learned a lot from it and I've been on, I've been on this um, journey for about two years now. And um, I, well, I don't know, there are pluses and minuses to it. So, so it's definitely very educational going through the process of actually trying to figure out what your carbon footprint is and where it comes from. Uh, uh, but surprisingly difficult to do. <laughs> it's, it takes a lot of work. But um, it did, you know, it does kind of come down to a few really big ticket items that to some degree can stop you sort of stressing about kind of really minor stuff that's sort of massively second order. And you're right, I mean, absolutely kind of number one for a rich Westerner is how much do you fly? I mean, you know, in terms of the incremental difference you can make to your carbon footprint, that's, that's like a really, really massive one. The one that was a real eye opener to me was diet. Um, I hadn't realized yeah, I mean, diet is 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 often a quarter of our carbon footprint, and and actually, if you're prepared to go vegetarian, um, you can you can really take an axe to that in quite a material way. And one of the things, if I look back on um, this year, I mean, obviously, no flying—that's like a big tick for the carbon footprint. We've slightly relapsed on the vegetarianism, and that's partly been through having kind of kids at home the whole time who aren't such keen vegetarians. And how many meals are you prepared to cook, and all of this kind of stuff? But so that's one that I want to sort of um, push on a little, a little bit more. Um, the other one I've been grappling with, which comes back to your sort of government policy point, is home energy. So I've been trying to. So we've got solar panels. We use a green energy provider, you know, who I think has a credible case for saying that if not zero carbon, it's definitely much lower carbon than normal electricity. So I wanted to move to putting an air source heat pump in um, as a supplement to the boiler. I haven't quite got the guts to get rid of the boiler altogether yet, but the idea would be heating is 80% of what you, you use home energy for. And I could do that all through the, um, the air source heat pump, but Goodness me, it's complicated to do. Uh, you know, you've got to... like 10, 20,000. So if you're yeah, not renovating already. It's massively expensive. You did, there are some government grants. Um, and, and if you believe that they'll persist, then they, they, they reduce the cost. But there are also, you know, all practicalities about the space you need for the additional units that you've got to put in. You need quite a large sort of air conditioner unit. You can't put it within one meter of your neighbor. So you have to have it. So that means that we can't put it down the side of the house. We'd have to put it at the back of the house. You know, actually finding suppliers who, you know, can just sort of, look at all of this this stuff in a timely fashion is is very difficult at the moment so i've been struggling with this for about a year i'm still hoping to get it done this year it's one of my sort of carbon reduction objectives for this year but actually you know you then look at it and i'm sort of doing it because i'm thinking well i'm an early adopter and i'm just kind of do it for the sake of it but it's you know the the, the, the cost per ton of carbon that i'll reduce will be absolutely you know enormous from, from doing this. And this sort of takes, takes us back to some of this earlier debate really, which is individual actions, whether it's by companies or, or, or individuals, just aren't gonna solve this issue. You know, we need to put in place the incentives that drive the economy 
towards exactly. enabling. Well, I mean, and, it, and, it, and if you look at heating as that example, as a, as a, as a kind of tricky area, whether you're going to go heat exchange, potentially mm. if you go uh, moonshot, say hydrogen or something like that, yeah. you look at it and you go, I mean, that's going to need government intervention or, some, or policy, yeah. only if you're looking at all that housing stock. And actually some places like Australia might be able to do it with solar. You could actually see a pathway for it uh, yeah. potentially and, yeah, and maybe with yeah, a nudge yeah. to market led, but within, yeah. within the UK that, you know, you, you, you uh, it seems to me that you're going to need that. And it's going to be quite, you, you do get a payback over a long period of time, yeah, yeah. but the yeah. upfront is so large. You can't expect yeah. um, the vast mm. majority of people to be there, but yeah. And, and maybe, uh, for uh, listeners, we can put some numbers on it if you think these numbers are about right. So if the average is around 12, this is yeah. uh, tons of carbon a year, I think going uh, veggie saves you about one to two tons a yeah. year, that yeah. order of magnitude. A flight is yeah. about a ton, long, yeah. so a flight to sort of New York. So yeah, New York and back can be about, uh, can be about two tons. Yeah. Um, depending on your car, a car change can be about a ton as well. If you stop using your car and just go cycling, yeah. that could be a ton to two tons, but very uh, impractical yeah. uh, for most people. Uh, and then, and then heating is again about a ton to two yeah. tons, depending uh, depending on where that is. Uh, um, I think. And but on the on the veggie thing, I think if you just go meat free one day. That's still about a quarter of a ton, a quarter to half yeah. a ton. So it's actually well, and also cutting out red meat. I mean, if you yeah, stick to particularly white meat beef, red meat, yeah, that's um, that's a massive that's a massive one as well. And um, I mean, see, the car one really fascinated me. Um, and I think I think we are going to go electric this later this year, probably. I mean, my daughter's currently kind of learning in a manual car, so <laughs> we're just sort of waiting till she passes, and then we might change it. But it is quite finely balanced, you know, because um, not only is it sort of in the embedded carbon cost of, of the car that, that, that you have, but also I did some an analysis based on kind of new car registrations and so on and so forth, which seemed to suggest to me that if you sell a car and buy a new one, um, only a quarter of that car that you sold gets written off, right? In yeah, effect, yeah. 0.75 of a car is added to the stock of cars and it gets driven about four or 5,000 miles. So there is something about how you're feeding the market for car usage. If you, now, if you're prepared to just crush your car, right? So, you know, if you're prepared to say, I don't no longer want that car, yeah. so I'm just, I'm just gonna crush it and put it in the ground, then maybe it's a stronger case for, for changing to it. Yeah, it is finely balanced. So um, it's, Mike Berners-Lee, who's the, the books that we, we refer to, yeah, yeah. Um, I think he calculates that mostly cars you should run until end of life before until changing life. Yeah, yeah. but actually on heating uh again there's so many ifs and buts for the average yeah. but if you've got, you've got a normal if you're a normal standard gas boiler because there's not so much embedded material no, it's not a it, very high you should do it but and embodied in the car there's quite a lot but but actually, also when you get rid of the gas boiler you're, you're you are effectively crushing it right crushing, so exactly because you're not you're not creating incremental boiler demand by, by by doing that but i think you know there is another thing that we all, always have to think about here as well which is around market market signaling as well you know because there is something about you know, it's governments tend to be quite cautious about regulation. And this is another area where I'm a fan of responsible businesses just pushing the envelope a little bit, because there is this concept of shifting the Overton window, you know, I mean, so if lots of people experiment in this area, it creates a condition where it becomes easier to regulate. Um, right, so I don't think it's right just to say, oh, we're going to wait for regulation and not do anything. No, um, um, I, think we I, I completely agree. And that's why 
people like you and me who are in a position to move that, I think that there is a little bit if we're interested in where it could work. And I actually think that's one of the reasons why um, Greta is so powerful because yeah. she so obviously lives what she's doing. Whereas you have some celebrities who, you know, and, and I think it's kind of fine, but, you know, they will fly over to New York to do mm. a protest or whatever and raise money. But, you know, Greta would go, that's too inconsistent. I would only ever get there. Yeah, I'm going to go by boat. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So yeah. it just leaves an extra sort of level of like, you know, you kind of feel like, oh, at the margin, the celebrity is still doing what's convenient. Whereas the, the, yeah. um, the powerful logic of where Greta is, is that there's no compromise because yeah. why would you? Yeah. It, it doesn't seem, it doesn't seem consistent, which I, I think that authentic resonance really goes down. So Ben, here's something I'd love to get your view on actually. So I think I've concluded, so, so I always used to offset my emissions, right? So whatever it was for the year, I'd offset them and, and, and allowing for sort of leakiness of, of offsets. I, I used to, I used to offset four times my, my emissions. I think I'm now concluding that all of these offset programs are potentially so problematic and leaky that I'd be better off spending the money just on direct efforts to reduce my footprint and signaling initiatives, even though in principle, they're much less, less efficient. Um, but I, I don't, I, I mean, I don't know what your view is on offsetting. And I haven't yet made this decision, but it's something I'm grappling with at the moment about whether I'm actually just wasting money on offsets. So the, I think if you're in a position to, uh, the mm. best thing to do would be essentially to plant your own trees. Mm. So rather mm. than outsource to some of these third party or we're not too sure, you can mm. actually either find a garden or a project or even a little bit of uh, woodland in the UK, like Son of Farrow, yeah. and then actually simply plant some, plant some trees. Uh, and I think it's something like every 50 trees is about a, about a ton. Mm. Um, and OK, it's actually a lot more than, you know, a $40 cost of, of carbon and that. But, it, but it's in the order of like maybe a, a couple of thousand and then, and then you can nurture them. Or you can find essentially direct giving projects, which aren't so much a first order off offset where you're, they're trying to go, okay, tree management, which we, which we know is a difficult thing to sort of maybe audit, but it's something much more direct, like saying, um, giving uh, education to girls in Africa or uh, better cookware and pots or things like that, yeah. where although it's slightly harder to calculate uh, the, the first order, uh, impact although they yeah. do do that so they can offset you 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 know where the trend that you're you're uh, doing systemic good uh, systemic good that way I, I do think the the first one where you actually and you, this you're saying it's a direct project right and and again the signal is it's actually a lot easier to do at least okay it's a small scale a direct um, impact a positive impact directly mm. to an organization or community that you're involved in. And particularly if you're only actually offsetting, you know, 10, uh, 10 tons of carbon, mm. you can find those projects uh, locally and, and maybe come on to this, you know, you with your applied math can very easily say, well, this order of magnitude is, is I've definitely uh, offset yeah. that with, with new. But, but the additionality is such a problem though, isn't it, Ben? You know, particularly now that, you know, we, everybody's within the Paris climate agreement. So a lot of these projects just get absorbed in government's yeah, I, I think, of their progress towards I do the think so. finding something that's genuinely incremental has become so hard. It, it, is, it is hard. And I think this is why I'm, I'm making further and further bets on essentially uh, innovation or some sort mm -hmm. of innovation which hasn't been created 
yet mm. or is in the process of being created. So that's mm. a kind of risk-adjusted uh, impact because some of it mm. isn't isn't of now. But again, for for where we are, where we have the ability to maybe make these assessments and judgments, uh, mm. I think people can make actually more much more local impact. Uh, mm. than you might think. Uh, the mm. other one actually to look at potentially is um, elements around food waste. Uh, because although although there are elements where yes, it is kind of happening, it mm. feels to me one area where we have easier wins and where, again, because mm. we're kind of still at the low hanging fruit mm. stage, you can actually mm. accelerate quite mm. a lot on that. And it's well, very win. Big, aren't they on, on food waste? Yeah, no, so very big, it's very win-win. Mm. It's about somewhere like 25% to a third, yeah, yeah, yeah. In, somewhere like the UK is mm. wasted on the on the end table and we have still have some in the supply chain area so mm. again if you're looking for a sort of focused area that's mm. that's something mm. i would think about great um so i have plenty more questions so i sort of see we're coming uh, up to a little bit of time so maybe another uh five ten minutes if that's uh, mm, if that's good sure. with you i thought we'd maybe do a, a short game of kind of overrated underrated you can pass or we can do uh, you can do a, a, a quick one this is i guess hat tip yeah. uh tyler cowan but there are a few others uh who do this so we'll do that and then talk about uh, i guess a couple of uh, of personal things as well mm. uh, and then end up with things so just a few ones so overrated underrated we'll, we'll do some tricky ones first carbon tax uh, ooh, uh underrated underrated so that because if we if we need to do it, it's a uh, it's a thing to help price markets. Yeah, I, guess I mean, the, I'd rather do cap and trade, I suppose. Uh, sorry, okay. I, I got yeah, cap and trade, carbon price. Yeah, sort of technical discussion in my own head there about whether to say underrated or overrated. I think cap and trade would be massively superior to a carbon tax tax if we could make it work. Yeah, cap and trade. Um, I guess the counter argument I hear on that is is to do with this political thing. Uh, we just don't seem to have the political will or. Uh, uh, mandate to push these things through because yeah. the idea's been around for a long time. Okay, so uh, this is perhaps a little bit precise. Uh, diversity targets, uh, overrated or underrated? I guess we're talking at the corporate level. Overrated. Overrated. And this is because of, uh, I guess, second order or unintended effects on actual targets? Uh, so... It, it, it slightly depends on where the targets are set. Um, and, and obviously targets are important, but the reason I say overrated more than anything is that I think there's somehow this view that all we've got to do is force more numbers through of underrepresented populations and the problem will solve itself. And I think that hugely underestimates the scale of change that is required in our organizations uh, in order to make greater diversity a success. Sure. Um, pay ratios, overrated, overrated. underrated. Overrated, easy one there. <laughs> Total red herring. Yeah. Yes. Um, Milton Friedman. Oh, uh, un underrated, definitely. Yeah. I mean, you know, he get he, he's definitely portrayed as um, this this sort of bet noir of um, you know. The, the, I mean, you'd have thought that he was responsible for many of the world's ills and runaway climate change and deforestation and goodness knows what else. And uh, I think a lot of that's been very unfairly put at his door. Um, overrated, underrated. The idea that incentives are everything. Overrated. Overrated. Yeah. There's a lot of other overrated. things in the world. Yeah, and it's interesting. And uh, I so say with Alex Edmonds and Dirk Genta, we're just doing this 
study of um, how CEO pay is set and works. And it's quite interesting that everybody accepts that intrinsic motivation is the most important motivational factor for CEOs. And yet we constantly act as if CEOs are coin operated and um, you know, if we want to change their behavior, then we need to bring different targets into their pay. Sure. Yeah, it's a component. I'm, but it's not the be on or end all, which I why which why I think is very intriguing on this purpose. You know, why are CEOs trying to do what they do? Okay. Uh, so uh, a couple of other questions here. What do you think people misunderstand about happiness? Ah, right. so this is, I mean, this is really, really interesting. I mean, so we're basically there are systemic errors that we make about what we think is going to make us happy. So we vastly overestimate the extent to which changes in our life circumstances will make us happy. So getting, a, you know, getting the new job or even getting married, actually, uh, or, um, or, or avoiding illness. I mean, there are lots of things that we think, oh, well, that must make us really, really happy. But then you go to people who've had those things happen to them and they're just as happy as people who haven't even for quite extreme things like accidents that result in paraplegia and so on and so forth um so one is 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 that the second is the extent to which sort of stuff is is going to make us happy so stuff over have, experiences yeah stuff over experiences and so we systematically misestimate what is going to make us happy and you know part of it is um, I mean, there are these two sort of errors that, that, that come to mind. One is this thing called focalism. So when we're thinking about something that we haven't got, whether that's a, something in our life or, or, or an object, we're only thinking about that. So we vastly overestimate the extent to which it's going to influence our happiness when we get it. Whereas once we get it, all the other crap in our lives is still there, right? And it doesn't make, and all the other good things actually, you know, and this thing that we thought was so important sort of pales into the background. The other thing is that we psychologically adapt to whatever life throws at us. And that's one of the great strengths that we have as humans, you know, we're incredibly adaptable and that has great upsides because we're very, very resilient in the face of, of disaster. But the downside is that we also become inured to things that we think are going to make us happy. So we tend to overestimate the extent to which things will make us happy and for, and for, how, and for how long. Uh, but we don't realise that we make these errors. So we keep chasing the wrong stuff all of the time. And so I guess this is one of the lines of work that you're advising on in your kind of yeah. coaching and financial coaching. Are there any other couple of areas that you kind of think you're, you'll, you'd be really good at uh, advising people on to, to think about? Um, so, I mean, probably, I, so I think, the, I think the other one, and I guess it, it, is, it is linked, but it's getting, and in fact, it links a few themes that, that we've had over the last few minutes. I think this concept of enough is, is a really important and, and underestimated one. I mean, we're in a world where sort of saying I've got enough sort of feels like settling. Yeah. <laughs> it somehow feels like we should be striving for more. But actually, just for your own sort of mental well-being, but actually also looking at things like our impact on the planet, th th this concept of enough has to come into play. And my, my work is generally with successful professionals, and they often lose all touch with the idea of what it means to have enough and you know you just need to show them what what do ordinary people you know live on and you know most successful professionals are kind of in the position of you know a teacher who is 40 has to work until 65 and has just won a million pounds in the lottery 
I mean, that, that is sort of the position that most successful professionals are in. And yet they don't sort of act or feel that that way. So there's something for me about figuring out what enough is from a material perspective and a consumption perspective to really focus on what matters in life. Yeah. Is that ladder that we've all sort of stepped on, particularly successful people, and they haven't kind of been able to calibrate to a lot of our earlier talking about what makes us happy, what is purpose, mm. what is success, what is what is enough. So that's yeah. really fascinating. Uh, great. So um, maybe the final kind of two or three questions here is, um, what can we learn from singing? Ah, so yeah, singing. I mean, singing creates this um, sort of very unique sort of bypass of the rational brain deep into your emotions somehow. I mean, it's, it's, it's a truly spiritual experience singing and particularly singing with other people, which is a very communal sort of singing. communal experience, mm -hmm. communal singing. And, um, you know, is it, interestingly, is something that sort of doesn't appear now in the everyday lives of, 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 of a lot of people. And um, so I think that three things you can learn, you can learn about teamwork, you can learn about, you know, the beauty that you can create as an ensemble that you can't create by yourself. Uh, I think you can, you know, you can learn about how the physical affects the mental. Um, and there's just something about the appreciation of, of, of beauty that's in that. So choirs are underrated. Definitely yeah. underrated. And it's interesting, actually. So I was in a choir until just before lockdown. Um, I want to find a choir that doesn't require quite as much work as the choir. Right. I was <laughs> so there you go. Anyone listening, there's, there's yes. a singer for for available but not exactly. too much rehearsal yeah more yeah exactly not <laughs> three just... complex pieces that okay. are right at the edge of my ability all the time um exactly and and so uh, maybe as a as a follow-on from that do you have um any advice for i guess young people uh today or people sort of anywhere within their careers or their mm. or their life what what kind of uh pieces of, of thinking uh that you would give them uh, and maybe this is the sort of like, what would you be telling your 21 year old yeah. self type of thing? But yeah, any, any thoughts about where we are now and, and yeah. what they should think about in the future? So, uh, I, so I think there are two I'm gonna, gonna focus on and they're, they're, not, they're not particularly about where we are right now, but um, I think they have universal applicability. You know, so one is around just doing your best to live life on your terms rather than according to other people's expectations. And um, you know, there's, a slightly, there's a slightly sentimental book by Bronnie Ware on the top five regrets of the dying, who, the, the, uh, an Australian carer who, who went around looking for people after people who was terminally ill. You know, and her number one regret that she had identified was, you know, I wish I'd, um, uh, what was I wish I'd had the courage to live life on my terms rather than according to the expectations of other people. So I think avoiding that regret is really important. And I think the other thing is as well, is you look at all of this sort of uh, research, psychological research on the extent to which we're adaptable. Uh, on the whole, we should take more risk. Interesting. In and, relation and, and, to our careers uh, in particular and our life choices, because the reality is it will never be as bad as you fear. Yeah. I, and this is the kind of, you know, when you think about the risk of omission or the risk of commission, there is the risk of not doing things. We should do yeah. more, try more things yeah. out. Yeah, yeah. Great. Excellent. And then final question then, in terms of what looks like um, a productive day 
uh, for Tom, or do you have any kind of personal productivity tips? What kind of do you think kind of works or works mm. for you or could work generally or what definitely doesn't work? Like, yeah, if, if this happens in my day, that's not going to be a day where I'm very productive. I, I wonder whether it should start with a little bit of a song, but uh, I don't know. Maybe not. <laughs> you don't want a song from me. Yeah, but there, there is some evidence that people who start with um, either a song or something communal or actually physical activity is, yeah. is the other one, that there is something to that. But I, I guess that's a little bit esoteric for most people. Uh, although I guess a lot of people sing in the shower. But anyway, uh, productive uh, day for Tom. What do you think it looks like? Yeah, so, well, I think you have mentioned one of them. So, it, so if I've had a really, really good day, really productive day, um, it's, it's, it's probably got three characteristics to it. So one is I've started it well, and I'm trying to start every day now with a little bit of yoga and meditation. And I do find that when I do that, it makes a big difference to my focus for the rest of the day. So I'm, I'm, I'm trying to create a habit out of, out of that. Um, I've got a target of doing it every day this month and I'm, I'm on it so far. So I need to stick to that. The other one is this whole thing around deep work. So I'm a terrible butterfly and I, you know, I sometimes find myself going around this cycle of, you know, checking each email account and then I check LinkedIn and then I check Twitter and then I go back to the first, even before you know it, you've just gone round in circles. And so, you know, um, so for me, productivity is also associated with just shutting these applications down um, and really focusing on some, you know, deep work for a period of time. And the other one that I've really noticed uh, since we've been in various stages of lockdown is um, fresh air. Is, is if I have a day when I've been stuck inside all day, my productivity goes goes through the floor. Great. Is that, do you think combined also with a walk or is that simply just sitting in the garden? Uh, I think that just being outside in some sort of natural environment is, is a lot of it, but obviously a walk's better because that also gets you a little bit of, you know, cardiovascular as well. Great. Well, uh, I think we've had an excellent conversation uh, and I'll just say uh, thank you very much. If you want to learn I've more really about Tom uh, and Tom's work, um, it, basically Google him. Tom Gosling is, is, is his website and you can find him on LinkedIn uh, and Twitter as well. So thank you very much, Tom. Thanks very much, Ben.